episode of Maggie Reads. We are continuing through the Agatha Awards this week with the surprise end to the trilogy of the last question and the last answer that we previously discussed in this podcast. Sadly, this one's not written by Isaac Asimov. He died at the untimely age of 72 some 30 years ago. So instead, we are continuing on to The Last Word by Sean Riley Simmons. For those of you that weren't familiar or have not watched our last episode, shame on you, but BJ, can you tell us a bit about what the Agatha Awards are? Actually, Sarah, actually, you did it last time. Tell us a bit about what the Agatha Awards are. Um, sure. So these, this is a yearly award that comes out particularly in the category of the cozy mystery, um, which we did define in the last episode, uh, much to the chagrin of the story that we talked about. Um, but there were a couple of hallmarks of it, which, you know, mostly have to do with the idea of an amateur sleuth is solving some sort of mystery in a very specific location, um, along with the reader. And the Agatha Awards are really meant to capture that kind of that kind of ethos. So if you think about like a Miss Marple, for example, who is obviously not a hard-boiled detective in the world, but <laughs> perhaps has some insight into human character and their motivations um, and a specific connection to a time and place, then you get kind of towards a cozy mystery. So, question to ask you all then. Our last story that we handled, Blue Ribbon, we all th- I think we all felt it pushed the definition a little bit in terms of whether it fell into the category or not. Yes. In one word, where do we all stand on the subject about whether this story, the last word, falls into what we believe is the definition of cozy mystery? BJ, would you I'm like to go say, first? Oh, Spencer, go yeah, ahead. You, well, I'm going to start out with no. I, this does not feel <laughs> like it falls within the definition of a cozy mystery. BJ, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is your answer yeah or sarcastic yeah? Uh, thematically problematic is... Uh, where I'd go. I think we're going to find out that all of the mysteries that we're going to read are not cozy mysteries, um, but fall into a different category that whoever is giving them out likes. <laughs> but perhaps does not have a name yet. I would say that this is, no, this is not a cozy mystery. I would argue that it is a mystery at all. It's one of those things for we, I've not... Really even thinking about it, I've not read much of what, at least are this length of short story before in the mystery category. I've read, you know, Agatha Christie level short stories or mysteries that are still like 30 pages long. Yes. Or much longer. Six pages really apparently does not give you much time to do other than what I would view as an aspect of a mystery. I mean, there is a part of a mystery here, as we talked about before, before podcast, it feels like a very much confined element of a broader mystery, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a full mystery by any definition. No, it's a micro story. Right. Sarah, I think it was you that described it as it's the moment when the detective reveals that they've now understood the mystery. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a really good read on it. Yeah, this really feels like, you know, um, say Sherlock Holmes and Watson have now realized the, realized the crime and are now confronting the murderer with all they know to get the murderer to break. And then the murder reveals all, and they take it away by Scotland Yard. That's what these feel like, is that moment, rather than necessarily the entire setup and us being along with the characters in the mystery. There's no mystery here to the characters, other than the guy that's about to get stabbed. The only mystery is to us about how the stabbing is going to occur. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's more of a, there's a surprise, rather than there's a, I mean... It's hard to otherwise cram, like, 30 stories into a collection unless they're, like, 
seven pages long. So, well, and hmm. it's hard as we will as we will talk about. It is hard to cram thirty stories into a seven-page story and expect mm-hmm. it to be successful. Uh, yeah. Before we get into the meat of this story, um, Sarah, I have to ask: uh, Have you prepared both a drink for this episode and or one star review? I have indeed prepared a drink for this recipe or for this episode, um, but I will yield my time on the one star reviews to some other con- content. <laughs> um, so I have made a drink for this episode that is called um, an old friend. Aww. Well, <laughs> I like it already. It it gets to a particular aspect of the story that drives me absolutely up the wall. But to talk about the drink itself before we get there, this is we are back, guys. We are back in the realm of gin drinks. Yay, Sarah's happy. Are we so excited? <laughs> Things are better in the world. Um, so, and this is actually a very simple dr- gin drink, which is composed of things that are absolutely up my alley. So it Does it have Iocane in it? <laughs> <laughs> go Arsnick. We're going Arsnick or Cyanide. These are classic mm, Mr. Boys yes. here. Um, so it is an ounce and a half of very dry gin. Um, three quarters of an ounce of fresh grapefruit juice. Uh, half an ounce of an Italian red bitter liqueur. And I'm actually um, using that uh, Maro Montenegro that I used for a drink several mm. episodes back. Um, and then it is also a half an ounce of um, elderflower liqueur, which all of which are right up my alley and combined are indeed exactly what I want out of a cocktail. Um, So this is great for me. It's shaken. It's it's, uh, served in a coupe glass and it is refreshing. I realize that it is in the middle of winter when we are recording and releasing this, Um, but I'm happy to drink it at any time. This is great. One of the things I like most about this, Separately, Sarah sends around pictures to all of us before the podcast. I love the color on it. It has such a it has such an appetizing or bright color associated with it that I don't really think we've seen before in the drinks you produced. Yeah, it's a very kind of light, pinky, orangey kind of color, um, which comes from the grapefruit and the amaro. And we have this week and last week, really, we have gotten away from the brown drinks that the machine learning algorithm told me told me to make in our our last segment. Um, and this is this is exactly what I wanted out of the cozy mystery um, genre. So we have gone to gin, and everything is fine. I am very glad that the drink satisfied you more than the story ultimately did. At least better one better one victory than, than losing both. Yes. If if it, it that's why it's a good thing it wasn't a rum drink, <laughs> but that might have been more appropriate for the story. I know I had to make myself feel better somehow. But I was thinking <laughs> specifically in this story, I didn't want to do one star outrageous one star reviews um, for this story or indeed the last story because I, stories that disappoint me, those seem to just sort of pile on to the discussion that we have. So we will leave those mm-hmm. aside. I am interested though, a lot of this story revolves around the institution that is the Michelin star. Yes. BJ, you seem like someone who would know something about the Michelin star. <laughs> Not um, stereotype you, but yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, and at some point, maybe I will give you the um, Monsieur Pumplemousse uh, <coughs> mysteries to, to enjoy. The, the um, Mr. Grapefruit m- mysteries? Uh, yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, which are focused around food in a way that I think is better than these. Um but the Michelin Guide is actually from the Michelin Tire Company, 
Um, it doesn't have the same uh, character portraying both of those uh, features <laughs> that they produce, but um, it basically is, is it's sort of the most French thing ever. Um, so there weren't many uh, cars in France, and uh, therefore, and people weren't driving a lot in France. And so the owners of Michelin uh, Tire Company, uh, Edward and Andre, basically were just like, I know what we can do. We can get people to drive places if we tell them about restaurants and hotels and whatever else, um, and a lot of other useful things like tire repair, whatever, um, around everywhere in France, and then they'll go to these places and use them. And also, like, if we tell them where they can get their car repaired, not only will they go, but hopefully they will have tire problems and we can repair them, basically. Or they'll just wear it out. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was in 1900 uh, that, they, uh, that they did this, and then they expanded to Belgium uh, in 1904. Um, and so it took a while for Michelin stars to really hold the weight that they do now. Um, I'm not exactly sure when that happened. Um, the stars started in 1926. Oh, wow. Um, and in 1936, the criteria were established. Um, but still not really clear where this, like, where the insanity um, went into it. So what, because so what I, are the criteria? So one star is a very good restaurant in its category. I won't try and pronounce the French. Uh, the second is excellent cooking and worth a detour. And three stars is exceptional cuisine worth a special journey. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and things got very complicated. And there's a lot of issues associated with how Michelin stars are given out, who they're given out to, like winning and losing them. Um, and for fine dining, to a large extent, it's kind of a make or break. Oh, mm -hmm. Losing or not getting a Michelin star will ruin a chef or ruin a restaurant. Yeah. In a way that they can't really recover from if that is going on the fine dining zone. So who the actually other decides these? The Michelin company like gets, decides them. And so what happens is they send um, agents basically out to eat at restaurants. Mm -hmm. And very much undercover, um, like... If you know who an agent, it, like, who one of these, like, Michelin star uh, people is and you cater to them, like, it's a huge problem, like, at least in the industry, mm -hmm. like, they they mark you off for that, essentially. They, they want to make sure that they're treated the same. On the other hand, like, if you're not treating everybody that way, you can definitely, like, not get a star. And so, like, it's this very weird knowing but not knowing kind of similar to food uh columnists mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um where like you know who they are and you kind of want to treat them special but if you overtly do it like there are ones that will knock you down for it a polite and necessary fiction that must be yeah um but as i remember um and uh that they take fairly great pains to uh not let restaurants know ahead of time like when they're coming and sometimes it's very obvious like who it is but it, there is at least 
there used to be an attempt to like not make it obvious and like you would find out about it a while later um but you would sort of know that you were in the consideration usually Mm -hmm. Which makes a key aspect of this story rather odd in the sense that an individual critic has any level of control about whether he has the our other character has two star two Michelin stars or not. Yeah, whether it's yes. the like press appearing in an independent publication actually feeds right. into the Michelin star system. Um, so I believe it isn't, but um, like to lose a star, I think like somebody would come back. Um, so it does say like oh so they're commonly called inspectors are anonymous and they don't have identify themselves um, anyway so my guess is that the how this would transpire in the real world is they'd see a bunch of negative reviews on a two-star Michelin restaurant and send somebody out to see Check it. yeah, yeah mm-hmm. to see if it still holds up because it's just such a an institution right. now which is hilarious. Yes. Right. And and because of like the very kind of genuine thing that one of our characters and we'll get in we'll get into this, but one of our characters sort of says like as a as a food journalist, as a food critic, this was a defining moment for me. Yeah. to essentially be able to pan this restaurant. Um which is really interesting because there are different ways that critics go about how they do things and there's some very prolific uh food critics that have done like really amazing things and really terrible mm-hmm. things in, mm-hmm. in their food critiques. I believe it was um, the uh, New York Times food critic was very well known for blowing up small restaurants in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, <laughs> at Thank least. Thank you for that clarification. You didn't use dynamite. <laughs> right. No, no, no. But like also basically going there and calling them out for things and, and like really just tearing down their their cuisine or whatever else um but basically really made some small restaurants however he was super identifiable and like if you got a good review you basically had to hire a bunch of staff like immediately oh interesting because they would follow him around yeah and and so there were definitely some restaurants that um like after he came in and it was like a mom and pop shop we're just like we have to set limits on who we let in our restaurant anymore because like we can't keep up and and or we have to figure out how to expand yeah mm-hmm. so bj you mentioned that like some of these maybe the one michelin star distinction is based on type of cuisine is that right so or type it, of restaurant a, right uh, so it's a good restaurant in its category so yes, in like the category. it would be like yeah this is a good you know Japanese restaurant. This is a good Korean restaurant. And then I think the next one would be, this is a very good restaurant, like worth going to. And it's not like, we're just talking about like of the good restaurants. So are the categories themselves, are they, are they generally ethnically based or is there some other consideration that is going into like what counts as a category in this situation? I believe it is ethnically based, um, but it's much more place-based as well it, it's it gets complicated mm-hmm. um it, it, and it's it getting political. more complicated so is, yeah, it, it get, is it like get, a michigan star Mi- michigan michelin star different in new york city say than michigan for example um no okay uh, i don't know that there are any michelin stars in michigan so basically <laughs> it's only going to be some only going to be big cities sure it, it's pretty much uh go ahead spencer what no oh, no, 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 no i was yeah <laughs> go ahead bj um, it's pretty much only big cities, and then there are, like, 
a whole other host of problems because like um like what do you do with a restaurant that like only does one thing and it's super simple so Mm -hmm. like the classic example that that sort of has gone through weird iterations is jiro dreams of sushi Mm -hmm. like that restaurant Mm -hmm. Mm um i think eventually got two stars i don't remember if like they they went from there but around that time that that happened like there was a whole thing and then they just started like doling them out like crazy uh like one and two stars to in i think kyoto and tokyo and then like it just became a huge thing um while it does talk about really great restaurants and it's a good thing to look at the necessity of what you need to go through to get one where you need to be and things like that other than like the french countryside make it a problematic uh feature that sort of everybody strives for Mm -hmm. Um, but spencer you have lists well i don't think there are any in the state of michigan (laughs) that answers that question um (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it looks like um very funny there are countries that have uh, numbers of Michelin star uh, on the Wikipedia page. It has different countries and areas, um, and then it has regions and cities. Um, and so it's like Chicago, L.A., New York, D.C. DC. And that's yeah. Um, if I'm reading this correctly, there weren't even any awarded to U.S. restaurants until like 2005. Fair. Um, that may be true. I I feel like there are some before that, but I think that they're just listing the most recent edition. Mm. Possibly. Um, in in that list. But but in terms of just how prestigious this is, as of November 2020, there are 2,651 restaurants in the world that have been awarded at least one Michelin star. But in terms of where it jumps from one to two, 385 have gotten two stars, and only 106 currently have three. Of which. In New York, which I'm assuming is where the story takes place, given mm-hmm. what are the references we have, uh, there are 76 restaurants that have been awarded one Michelin star, at least currently they have one. Only 19 have two or more. So it is incredibly prestigious. It is incredibly rare. It is incredibly coveted. And apparently it is worth killing for if this story provides any guidance. So I have one more mm-hmm. question about the Michelin stars um, and about Michelin stars starred restaurants. Is there... Do either of you know if there's any sort of correlation or trend with, I don't even know how to ask this question necessarily, but like, is it associated with kind of trendy restaurants? And I I realize they have to be at the top of their game with whatever they're doing, but like it, in my mind, it's associated with kind of trendiness as well. So uh, yes and no. Um, So I would say broader trends um so like there was a time that like they're like oh we have to go to japan and do it like we have to go other places to do it i think fairly recently like they started going to china a lot more um but like places that are going to get michelin stars are often going to be very trendy okay um so it's either very trendy in the sort of french restaurant uh milieu or like the trend of what's hot in cuisines that people are messing around with. Like I would, okay, well, I'm, I was going to say, I would bet that if they haven't gone to Korea, they're going to go recently. Uh Um, and it looks like they were in the 2020 edition. Okay. Um, and so that's where it's just like, everybody started doing Korean stuff in the past, like five, 10 years. 
probably five years, I want to say, mm-hmm. where everybody had like a kimchi something or other. Yeah. And so that that's where I'm guessing that got picked up. Like Japanese food and sushi became popular before that, but it, it wasn't until like, I want to say the into the 2000s that, that Japanese became as popular as something other than like right. Japanese steakhouse and sushi mm-hmm. place. Okay. And, and there, there is still very much a stereotype that it is very, very French favoring. There are mm-hmm. a significant portion of French restaurants that are on the list for stewing stars compared to any other country or yeah. type of cuisine. Which right. which plays out in the story that we're going to talk about, right? Like this is this is American French cuisine. Right. Right. And, and I, I double checked it. The first Ameri- Michelin Guide to American Cuisine was only published in two thousand and five. <laughs> uh, okay. And it only covered New York City at the time. It's only been since that it's been covering other broader areas. But it's, yeah. it, it's really funny that some nations apparently have just been intentionally snubbed. Like, the first guide to Britain was published in 1931, and they did not publish an updated guide until 1974. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, the first guide to Italy was published in 1956, and at the time awarded no stars to any Italian restaurant. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> that seems very on brand. Uh, how long did it take for Germany? Uh, 1992. <laughs> I don't see him on the list. <laughs> I would Come say on. it's probably past eight. I mean, they were there in 2019, so I don't know like when the first one was. It might have been 2019, and that'd be very funny. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, the, uh, to quote a German newspaper on the subject, in the view of the fact that German cuisine is regarded as a lethal weapon in most parts of France, there has been a, re- <laughs> there's been a continual delay on issuing a German guide. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, so sh- now that we've talked about a lot of history, it was quite a bit of fun. Should we talk about a story, too? <laughs> yes, sure. let's give a brief... <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's a brief story. We can give a brief. Uh, well, just just to give a little telling. bit. Telling. I'll give a, just a little bit of background yes, to get into the story. Please. This is by Sean Riley Simmons, who is a professional mystery writer. Uh, she actually is on the board of Malice Domestic that does the <laughs> Agatha Awards, and is in fact the editor or one of the editors of the compilation of stories that the last award is in. So yep. she kind of serves a similar role to the editor and comp- compiler of you know the last collection of short stories that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, she also apparently has a heavy background in the culinary world as being um, running and working in restaurants, being the chef owner of a of being, being uh, working in various catering companies, which factors into her most famous series, the Red Carpet Catering Mystery Series, which from the description sounds very cozy mystery. Yeah. And and I sort of wonder if like their go the brief is a lot more. It needs to be a very, very short story. Um, and this feels like there should be two people. They have a re- they have some sort of interaction relationship, and then there's a death. Um, because I've read a couple of the other stories in this compilation, and that seems like everybody has followed that template so far. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a all right, well, that's not a really a cozy mystery, but like if that's what we're reading, I'm more accepting of what's happening now. Right. If, if, yeah. if this is an established subgenre within the genre, that's fine. It just leads me to be all the more curious to get to read stories that are now outside of this subgenre of the category that are being that are competing for awards. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. because we've read two of essentially. I mean, they have kind of the same plot if you take the fifty thousand foot view. Mm-hmm. And while there are aspects of both of them that I like that we will get to, fundamentally as a as a real fan of the cozy mystery genre and someone who was very excited to read like actual cozy mysteries, these have been wild disappointments. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, 
well, let, let's get through it for right now. I mean, our yes. story is very simple in terms of setting. This is even shorter than the Blue Ribbon. It's six pages of where our two, mm-hmm. our two characters are James and Simon. Which are also two, say, like, such generic white men names that I had trouble differentiating them throughout this story. Yes. <laughs> Intentionally so, I'm sure. Of where are James you? <laughs> is, James is the chef owner of a preeminent New York restaurant that before... Until recently, had two Michelin star, very precipitous. Yes. Until his old friend Simon, who they went to culinary school together, they have a 20-year friendship, apparently played a key role in tanking his restaurant by delivering a bad review, given that Simon is now in the critic industry of actually working actively in the culinary. And our setup is that James has apparently called Simon back to the restaurant, either during off hours or when the restaurant is oddly closed, so as to apparently, well, Simon doesn't know why, but... Uh, Having less conversation. To have it, very much so. And make him the exact same meal that he presented before when he was coming in as a critic. Whereas mm-hmm. this time he's being invited in as a... Yeah. Um, and it's sort of interesting, like, the little interludes that we get into uh, Simon's personality and how much James dislikes him. Mm-hmm. Very similar to our previous characters where whatever the woman who survives at the end dislikes the woman who doesn't. Yeah, where the, the, the official label on them is that they are best friends, but then most of the evidence we get in the story suggests that that's much more of a title rather than necessarily in recognition of what they actually are, or at least the feelings of the one that's been keeping them silent so far. Yes, they have just yeah. known and interacted with each other for a long time. Yeah, there's a lot of friendship that relies on inertia, and clearly that's propelling a bit of this. Yes. Of where, well, our upfront... It's been a fun thing to debate the motivations of our main character in terms of why he ultimately does what he does. But whether mm-hmm. he's purely self-interested or purely almost petty and spiteful, or whether there's a certain amount of guilt bubbling up underneath the surface. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about this, so let's, let's yeah. keep going. Um, so, so to start, we have an appetizer of smoked oysters. I love that you go um, straight to the food, BJ. Thank you. Well, because that's the only interesting part of the story. <laughs> it, it, it is readily apparent throughout the story that Sean Riley Simmons has a background in the culinary world, given the focus and food that structures this. I mean, even the various moments and beats of the story are structured around what dish is being presented to the char- to the other characters. That's fair, but I yeah. am I am concerned about the lavender sprigs that are served alongside this dish. So what's really interesting is this is a very old story um, because of the food that's being served mm-hmm. um, and the flavors that they're using. I would guess that this story was either written in like the, I want to say 80s or 90s, mm. or mm-hmm. that was the last time that the author paid attention to food. Yes. I think it's probably the latter. It, it, it is interesting. So I, 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 there were several times in the story where I felt like it was purposely being set in a bygone era to some, some, of, the, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. of the representations. And I but guess it could very, be. There's no reason, like, there's no technological well, innovation. There is w- distinctly one thing that dates it. Okay. 2010 Rothschild. Oh, that's right. A very specific yes. bottle of wine that they even say was nine years. So it is pointed. That's fair. Pointedly but I prescient. Would, that is that is and problematically true. so. I would also say that my sort of food-ish knowledge is that like there was a weird period in like 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. when like foodie culture became a thing. But also was like weirdly looking back towards 80 food culture. 
for yeah. what was haute cuisine. Yes, yes, real um, luxurious, a, a real luxurious understanding of what um, a kind of high end meal was. So this. Uh, the first dish specifically, which is the smoked uh, oysters on a bed of rock salt uh, with lemon peel and lavender sprigs, reminds me of uh, an episode of The Chef Show, which if you hadn't see- haven't seen it and you like food or nerds, um, you should watch, <laughs> um, where the chef there talks about him making an um, onion soup presented in an onion on a bed of salt. And it was like the most 80s things that, or 90s thing that he had ever done. And that like, he jokes about it and how like he would never do something like this ever again. But it was a fun way to present stuff, etc. Mm-hmm. Our setup is that he's brought him back for originally um, the oysters. And like you talked about, BJ, we really get an impression early on of just how much of a perfectionist uh, Simon is about going about his job and what he demands. In terms of- mm-hmm precise types of caviar, precise moments and temperatures that he wants his ever know. He is clearly exacting. Um, and there's a lot of implication at the start that that may have informed why it is and just a an anger that is boiling up underneath the surface for an unfair review based on just being overly precise and overly exacting what it demands. But we, what we yeah. quickly see is that there are different undercurrents that are happening here. Yeah, of- and very quickly we get, not only is there the food, that seemingly has come between them, but there are women that have also um, informed had history. Inf- yes, well, uh, there's, had there's, some. There's food. There's levels of success in the food mm-hmm. industry, in where they mm-hmm. expected to be, and then there are women. Right. Yes, uh, of where you know James is running a, mich- a, a two Michelin star restaurant in New York. Yes, it is, he is at the top of the culinary game. Simon has, relatively speaking, flunked out of the culinary of the culinary world by comparison. Is now offering an outside critique. He d- he yes. is at the top of that particular game, but it is not where he. My interpretation is it is not where he expected to be given his background. Sure. It, yes, it, it, and it's like, it's like relative levels you... of depression between the bronze star winner, the bronze medal winner, and the silver medal winner. Where he's at the top of his game, but it's not the game he wanted to play. Yes. In. Yeah. Um, so the question is, is the only reason that it doesn't say New York Times because they might have gotten sued? Possible. Yes. Um, I don't know if New York review of restaurants is a thing or not. Sounds sounds too generic to be real. Yeah. Um, Um, or put out by like the state themselves and it's weird. (laughs) Just a marketing ploy. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, between, you know, possibly an unfair critic, loss of a restaurant, loss of business, we first hear the mention of class which is one of the things that clearly put this into a bygone era for me, because I have not met a person under the age of 60 named Gladys. I have. I will. Um, <laughs> yeah, I actually... But, like, you're in English departments, so, like, you have people that have named their children weirdly. No, I know. I take your point. You're, you are not wrong, and I have many thoughts on that as sort of a subject of conversation, but I have met an actual just <laughs> undergrad in the world who was... 20 when I met her, named Gladys. And it stood out enough to you that you remembered it. Well, I worked with her for a while, but, like, that's beside the point. Yes. Um, American? Her parents were from Central America. Okay. That's, I think, where where some of the differences crop up. I've also seen very interestingly old uh, American names pop up from, like, Asian countries. Yeah, that's fair. Well, Gladys appears to be a bit of a 
not necessarily a shared lover, but a shared contact between the two, of where it's someone that left Simon behind and then may have gone to James thereafter. It's kind of all we've really mm-hmm. got thereafter. And that there is, in James's view, possibly a lingering bit of resentment that's coloring this, or at least coloring Simon's worldview, but Simon tries initially to laugh it off and just get into some pretty dismissive attacks on Gladys that start off that aspect yeah. of the story. Um, and there seems to be some bad blood a lot of bad blood between Gladys and Simon. And uh, then there's the James is like, well, I didn't really have anything to do with that. I, you know, she just sort of showed up and yeah. like, I was mm-hmm. being nice to her. Mm-hmm. Um, In the midst was, of oh, which no, we're like, like getting different courses of this meal. Here's where we get the 2010 Rothschild. <laughs> we, we do. Yes. Which notably, I was double checking to look it up before I assumed this was a Chateau Lafitte uh, 2010 Rothschild, but it could also be a Chateau, a Chateau Mouton Rothschild, given that they're just frigging neighbor, neighboring farms in Bordeaux. Okay. But um, what's I, the di- difference in house? So, sorry, say it again? What's the house difference? I don't know. Well, uh, I'm, I was making sort of a bad do- joke about Chateau, I, but. <laughs> now I understand. Anyway. Uh, in, in terms of price, in terms of just level of seniority of wine these are the two at the top of the game when it comes to a deep rich red wine mm-hmm. both yeah. if you can even find them costing more than a thousand dollars a bottle yes I, a I think particularly good year the chateau lafitte is sort of like the go-to mm-hmm. whereas older. right I, I think it's older it's more commonly known i think it it's one of the uh similarities between like cognac and armagnac like they're going to be incredible armagnacs but people know cognac and so that's the go-to that gets written into things where they're both brandies ones from the neighboring province so you know how it became more well known probably because of um uh some french kings more than anything else one of the things that struck me about you know him opening the bottle is that I had a weird thought to myself where I've never hated somebody a thousand dollars worth to do that. <laughs> I've never had a moment of where I hate you enough that I'm just going to waste a thousand dollar bottle of wine to work in the process of killing you. Not knowing where the story ended at the time, it's like, have you poisoned the thousand dollar bottle for this purpose? Man, you must hate that dude. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do it, you may as well do it in style, Spencer. Well, only if you're doing it yourself in, which should have told me early on that that was what was going to happen. But there are also Fair like... Enough things in this meal that you could have poisoned that were not a thousand dollar bottle of wine that is rare to find and difficult to obtain and all but there are rare things that somebody would turn their nose up at like if it didn't taste exactly how they were expecting because they might not have an expectation whereas like if there are some flavors in a wine like a really expensive wine that you've never had before and you're just like hmm. that's no that is fair although i will say that at the end of the story, but spoiler, I guess we're getting there. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, there is a, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but the story does make a point of saying that the fentanyl in the wine did not have a flavor. Yeah. Fentanyl is notoriously flavorless, odorless, colorless. So you could um, have put that in something else. Yeah. It's very possible that, kind of like you guys were saying, that. This meal is so high class so as to lure Simon into a false and mm-hmm. if it was anything less, if it was anything other than the top yeah. of the game, he might have had a few more doubts. He already, when he first walks in, there's a certain clear element of discomfort in his bearing of where he's worried that he's going to be confronted or attacked or whatever else for delivering this bad review. Yeah. But then the quality of the food seduces him and the quality of the wine, I think he even says he like hurries up and rushes off to get the bottle just upon being told to go and get it. And I will say, kind of on second thought of this whole situation, like, I do believe that James is the chef, right? 
Yeah, okay. chef owner kind of thing. I think. Um, I do believe that like James has this amount and depth of pride in his food that he would not sully the food itself. Whether it has a yep. flavor or not, he would not be comfortable in adding the fentanyl to to the food, but is perfectly like happy MSG, to do so in the wine. In the wine, mm-hmm. yeah. He didn't, he didn't make the wine. Yes. The wine, and no, right? exactly. It, yeah, that has nothing no, that to do with sense, him. Yeah. He's just bought that and, and is shilling that out in the world, but it's not. that's not his yeah. creation. And um, as, as we ultimately see at the end of the story, too, all of this is meant to be this kind of last artistic presentation. Yes. This is an actor going out while dressed as Caesar kind of moment of where... His swan t- song, you might say? Very, very, yes, classically so, of where this is, this, this is meant to be the final moment of auditioning, to the, of showing everything that he's been capable of and accomplished, and he wants the death scene to be perfect recognition of the majesty of his... Yeah, and we also get, like, a couple of things that I find interesting in the way of describing things, and this is sort of where uh, the highs and lows of the writing itself, I feel like, are right next to each other. Um, because I really enjoyed the, um, just how much you're supposed to hate Simon in the, um, he was savoring the aroma of the wine that he felt was peaking on that very day in the middle of New York City after its long journey from Bordeaux nine years earlier. And it's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. oh yeah. And, and like, and the comments about the caviar, that's sort of where like, you know exactly who this person is and you hate them. Yes. Yeah. And then I... I'm disappointed that she talks about the uh, legs of the wine. <laughs> so when you swirl wine and it comes down, uh-huh. she talks about it. But there are so many other words for it that, that she should have used, like angel's tears or, or something else that are so so much better turns of phrase where, that she clearly has and knows. Well, and that this and, is, so I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Because while I feel that talking about the legs of the wine feels out of place in this story, mm-hmm. it fe- to me, it feels out of place because everything else in this story is so overwritten. All of the description, descriptive turns of phrase are so just overwrought. Oh, I that, 100% like, agree. Using a pedestrian term, of course, sounds out of place. Where like, if you were reading a regular story that was describing things in ways that were reasonable, um, would be okay. Or it would be okay to use some of these other terms um, to kind of emphasize the fact I have a real problem with the way the story is written. (laughs) So so I think that she's using it, and that's why I've gone over the top with, like, how terrible Simon is and how, like, over the top unpleasant he is. Well, I think that's that's fair if you... One of the other problems I have with this story is that it is unclear where the perspective is actually lying in the story. Yeah, it would have been really nice if we got if, if we got things that were in people's heads said out loud, there's no reason that it couldn't have been. He could have just been obnoxious and said, like, you know, like, this is the perfect moment for this wine. No, there's and all, the perfect place. And there is all kinds of stuff in the story written as dialogue that doesn't need to be. So why wouldn't you just throw all the rest of it in there? So. Right. But like, yeah. I think that there are necessary things yes. to be in dialogue and things and the things that were unnecessary that could have been thoughts. Yes. I mean, it's like yes. she, she swip, swapped those at some point and didn't realize it. Yes. I would guess the perspective would probably be described as an omniscient opt-in narrator in the sense that it's 
we're never direct. We're almost never directly seeing through the perspective of any one character, except when the narrator is swooping in to get it for a moment. Yes. But otherwise, we're just kind of generally just watching a scene with two people. Yes. So very like Harry Potter. Yeah, but it's a little clearer in Harry Potter what's going on. <laughs> and in terms of the writing style, there's moments of where it almost feels like it's intense parody of the kind of overwrought prose that colors like you know food like food reviews, yeah, restaurant oh, yeah. reviews, yeah, which feels intentional, and those kind of work. But, but it, those are just like brief little spurt moments in between the rest yeah. of them. Yeah, it never it's happens like, it, enough it's for it to until be. It's not. Yeah, it never happens enough for it to be like, oh, we are living in a parody right now, which I could mm-hmm. 100% appreciate. Um, but we dip in and out of it so much that it's not clear that that's actually intentional, which is deeply frustrating. Yeah. So um, I, I did like that aspect, but like you guys said, it didn't. It wasn't, if that was the intent, it didn't do enough of that to make it very clear that this is meant to be petty. This is meant to be very much in just that world to the point of parody. And this There's is, aspects yep. of that, but it's not clear. And I will say um, that this is specifically why I chose the old friend cocktail, because we have moments in the dialogue of them doing the sort of like old chum, old friend, etc., etc. That feels like it's intentional to be biting and cutting, but never actually gets there enough that it, for me, it never gets there enough that it is that we are living in a world where the conversation is actually doing something other than it is. One of the things that feels like a loss in this, it is a very common, this is a very common setup trope of where two friends sitting down with an act of betrayal between them. That is a hallmark of so much mystery fiction. Yes. But what never feels real here is the friendship to set up that aspect of the betrayal. Kind of like the last story we read. Sure. Yeah. Even the last story, though, it's still got a certain element of history going back through them here. We never get any reason that these two of them are friends so as to make the betrayal feel meaningful. This feels like it's a betrayal that's just been like the straw that broke the camel's back from what has otherwise just been years of not really particularly liking each other. Well, they worked to, they went to school together, they worked together, a lot of other things. But yes, I, I very much agree to you, with you that they don't have enough of that shared history spelled out or talked about to make this convincing. Mm-hmm. But we get to the meat of the story. Which, yeah. The, the duck breast of the, the story. With the seared duck breast, with the Asian <laughs> blues, blackberry oh, well cheese, with potatoes, I, I with like a it. little bit of caramel onion. Spencer, I, I don't understand why you thought this was going any different. Uh, this one I liked, though, because it caught me off guard. Well set up. <laughs> um, and we get a little bit more about like the issues between them. None of them are particularly interesting. Yeah, um, apparently Simon a... is like a, not only a misogynist, and a narcissist, but a serial rapist, or at least sort of women, woman, abuser, abuser yeah. which yeah. in none of which felt authentic, I have to say. Yeah. One, one, um, thing, one thing I will give the author some degree of credit for, and I, it may just be because it's a natural structure around the three three act of a story, but I do like... Is the, the puff t- pastry piece? <laughs> that, I did no. legitimately laugh at that one, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it, no, I liked it, but I, I'm kind of annoyed that the characters were giggling at it, too. I was, I was a little annoyed at that. But no, I like that the aspects of the conversation are structured around the meals in terms of what mm-hmm. the focus is. The appetizer is setting things up. The drink is leading into this intoxicating moment to then lead into the meat of what is the confrontation in the story. And then the capstone is the dessert upon which all things end. Yes. I'm, and, I'm willing and to give the digestive. credit that's intentional. Don't forget the digestive. Very much so, yes. 
I'm what, not William, a pla- palate cleanser this time. <laughs> after well, perhaps perhaps a palate cleanser for the actual chef rather than the diner. Yes. Um, so um, that that does kind of work, and I'm assuming it's intentional. But yeah, moving yeah. into the meat. Um, but yeah, I mean that that's sort of where we get a lot more of the like what happened between the two, and clearly there there were women that were both in their orbits that found out that Simon was terrible, went to James, James comforted them, but basically did nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Gladys may have motivated more of what's currently in his motivation or whatever else, or at least done a little bit more to stick with him. The earlier one from school, what was her name? Sarah. Was it Sarah? Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> he, he not only did not help her, he actively betrayed her. Of where yes. he, yeah. he helped lie and support Simon's account, which led Sarah to apparently commit suicide. Which we're being led to believe has stuck with him and he's now seeking vengeance upon her. Apparently. Except what his actual vengeance appear to be is entirely self-centered and petty and he's just using this to try to, you know, gossy it up a little bit. Uh, yeah. 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 This does not seem to have, like, un- until the review came out, this does not seem to have, yeah. like, really stuck with him. He, he was perfectly happy to live with that sin before, but uh-huh. now he's trying to reframe his D's around it being this kind of crisis moment of the Me Too well, era. And it's unclear. So I would say that it's unclear when Gladys That happened. was, yes, that was exactly what I was going to say. Like, was this three weeks Pressure. ago? Was this five years ago? Like, it is l- really quite unclear. Yes. Yeah. It's long enough that it seems like, it's recent enough that it seems like the two of them have not interacted much since then. Because when he's bringing it up, it's almost like it's the first time they've ever talked about it. Yes, but yeah. also mm-hmm. their their history makes it such that they might not have necessarily, for the past ten years, been having much interaction with each other. I perfectly believe that's possible. They come across as being rather estranged. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've get these. We've got these two instances. We've got this kind of moment of where he's essentially almost threatening to. Well, I think he's pretty directly threatening to blackmail the critic here is that you know the review is unfair Mm -hmm. you know it was petty you were essentially just trying to use bad criticism to elevate yourself in this industry or use criticism to elevate yourself in this industry by taking down a two-star michelin restaurant you know this and i know what an utter irredeemable ass you are like almost like you said sir almost to the point of parody that there's just nothing likable about simon at all he's being framed in every negative thing you can put into a person in six pages um and so he says, you know, give me a new review, re- redo it, otherwise I'll take, I'll release this and take you down. And he gets Simon around to offering the puff piece <laughs> to either release a, a new coda or even go back and talk to his editors to get a new review out. Yes. He's a, seemingly like he's accomplished everything that he wants. And Simon's content yep. that he's buried this again. Until he reveals that, no, he's already released all the information to the editors anyway. Which was like, honestly, yep. one and- of the most weirdly written moments of in in a story that is full of oddly written moments this was bizarre to me because i i have it pulled up um so simon looked up at him his eyes glassy you know what you've convinced me to retract my review with this meal he said his words soft at the edges which i don't really know what that means um he's going under (laughs) i'll sell it to my editor we'll both be okay old friend I thought I might be able to convince you, James said with a quick flash of his flash of a grin, but there's no need to talk to the editor. This morning I mailed off a full accounting of what happened between you and Sarah all those years back in school. And so like this moment is like it doesn't even fall into the trope of cozy mystery where there is some release mechanism where if something doesn't happen or does happen, then the evidence gets sent somewhere. 
I'm, I literally do not understand what is going on. So what's going on here is this is the, I'm letting you try and redeem yourself one more time and say that you fully stand by the review. Like, you know, this is but there's no there's no release you, mechanism for whatever white guy name mechanism. has to take back what he sent. No, no, no. But that's Sorry. not what this is about. This is about basically him him saying like if you have any honesty, you will stand by your account. And you you might say like you had a good meal, but you won't withdraw the review. But like you have no decency and. I clearly see that. And don't worry about doing that because it doesn't even matter because I've already like made steps because you're this much of a terrible person. Yeah, but it's it's the it doesn't even matter that really bothers me in this story. Well, it's one of those things where it's irrelevant to the story other than to provide an additional surprise to the reader, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the character motivations, it almost feels like it's just falling into his just utter ego wrapped into himself as just the master artist of where he wants the critic to essentially admit that it was just a bad word. He wants yeah. the critic to be one to reject it so that he can die contented that he was always a two-star Michelin restaurant. Yeah. Which that is, makes sense. I, which is, I like that as well. Yeah. It, it just seems to factor into, again, the ego that seems to be propelling the main character, Jay. Damn it, sir. You James, got me just saying yeah. two, got me just saying James two generic, white, generic white guy. Generic white guy. It does not matter, Spencer. But it, it seems like it's just factoring into the, the re, if we can debate the motivations of the character that all of this is really just about I want to feel vindicated as an artist and oh yeah I kind of felt bad about that women thing too Which, so I'm gonna yeah. take I'm gonna take you down with that while at the same time I kill us over the course of the meal that I made yeah what's his what's his face generic white guy has slipped fentanyl into the wine and it's gonna kill them both um, but he has left a dessert that is pristine because reasons but like what i want to point out (laughs) that's the end of the summary by the way but yes it is what drives me up a wall with the story is that it is what seven pages did we say Mm -hmm. something like that yeah six kindle pages on unlike the story that we read before which i also had problems with this story had so many plots going on in seven pages that it was almost incomprehensible as to what was going on and what the motivations were. Yeah. And like I, I realize so, that there is there is some value to having a little bit of ambiguity in what a motivation was. Like you can leave room for interpretation. Of course that is important. But this is so far in my reading beyond an interpretation that it's unintelligible to me. So in Media Rest works out if you explain things and you have context. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're getting is that, but without the context. And and I think I think there are people that would say there is beauty in that type of art. Um, they're wrong, but they'd say that. <laughs> it, it, it makes me in some ways appreciate even more the intro to the last story we did. Or we talked about, I, talked about, I liked the setup of it. I liked the kind of... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the simplicity, almost the philosophical take in terms of seeing the character, the build of analyzing what was motivating them to be there. Mm-hmm. We, get, we get a reveal of motivation over the course of this story. Mm-hmm. We get a reveal of different aspects of it, but it doesn't in any way feel the same kind of organic build, or it just feels like a bit of a deluge of information that's coming as we get as we rush to the end. Yeah. Well, I, you know, actually, I mean, the, the deciding to murder someone doesn't feel particularly organic to me, but the, the, sor- the many and myriad sources of frustration that 
whatever the fuck his name is, feels Mm -hmm. (laughs) over the course of the story. James, James, that actually feels very organic to me. Like, that feels very real life. And that's the reason that it's not satisfying as a cozy mystery. It was too short. I mean, like, and I think that this is going to be a continual problem of these short stories where because of the genre that you have, there needs to be more than if you have just a straight up fiction short story, even fantasy or sci-fi, because there you have a uh, cultural background that that people have consumed other fantasy and sci-fi that presumably you can draw on sometimes it'll work better than others but a mystery you have to write your own mystery yeah even if even if they're very campy they have to be like distinct especially the cozy mystery as opposed to like a hard-boiled mystery they have to be distinctly human in their motivations and i mean like i guess you could do like a short enough short story with an established character but even like but still it would be hard and you know not as good what this feels like is a relatively well executed cutaway during a larger myth yes of like mm-hmm. that we have the suspect is being you know chained to the desk or whatever else he's being confronted by the detective and the detective looks in the eye and says let me tell you what happened and then the television show cuts away to completely different actors in a completely different scene and plays out the moment of the murder. Mm-hmm. And then yep. when mm-hmm. that's done, they cut back to the detective looking in the suspect's eyes as he's starting to break now that he knows his grand mystery is unraveled before the before the miracle detective. Yep. This feels like that scene. Yes. Or it's a cu- cutout of the other mystery. As a cutout, it works pretty well. It builds up the characters' motivations. We have a reveal within the characters. We see we ha- we can debate the drive of why what the murder is even occurring, and it's it just even... needs the other eighty to ninety percent of the story. <laughs> right, I, I said I actually particularly even liked the act-based structure that's built into this centered yes. around the meals, and the love the author puts into the meals feels very authentic and yep. it ties into the, the motivation that James have. But I just again this may ultimately just factor in just not appreciation of the genre. I want everything else. But you know I, I think mm-hmm. we actually got. A, a character of whatever larger story this is a part of, we got those characters. They're the couple that shares a long kiss looking into... <laughs> like, I want their story. That's what I oh, want. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, this may... What we may see... I'll be really curious to see once we move out of this short story compilation whether we still have the same objections. Because if they prove universal, mm. then ultimately we can't judge these stories too harshly. Because we have just stumbled into a genre that we just inherently don't appreciate as much. Or at least what this award group decided to judge against. And I will say, I've read a couple of the other stories. I haven't read all of them yet. I think that these objections, while we might have related objections to other stories, I would say that these objections, for me, are specific to these stories. Okay. Gotcha. That, that, that is interesting to hear, because it, it will be fun to go back once we've seen the full array of these stories to see how these fit in compared to other mm-hmm. entries in the genre. Yeah. Because yep. though this is a very distinct story from the Blue Ribbon in a lot of ways, and ultimately feels more of a mystery, or at least closer to the genre to me than the Blue Ribbon did, mm-hmm. the two have a lot of similarities in terms of their yeah. focus and their structure and what aspects of what I would view a mystery they're choosing to focus on as compared to others. Yeah. It sounds like they both got the same outline and wrote different stories. That is a very interesting call. As if these were all... This, 
at the end of their English literature test, it was write a short story involving a murder mystery and food. You have an hour. And, and two they, friends that have been friends yes. for 20 to 30 years, but have ended up deciding one decides to murder the other. <laughs> and I would, I'm always curious when it goes into the process of editing a book about whether they were compiling stories they knew did that or whether they were sent instructions to authors to produce stories that did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. I, either way, there are similarities. Where We're going to debate this again nor the end, but in terms of your reaction to this story compared to the last, if you had to summarize your feelings in like a sentence or two, what would you say? But did you like it more? Did you dislike it more? And what aspects of them did you did resonate better or worse with? If it had been longer... And similar quality, I would have hated it, but it was short enough that I didn't care enough. Ouch. I actually, I, I liked the structure of this story better. Um, it, mm-hmm. To be fair, probably if it were part of a longer story as well. Um, but I liked the structure better, but I was so annoyed by the writing of the story. I can't, <laughs> like, I'm literally yeah. holding my head in my hands right now. Uh, I did not get to point out all of the instances of overwriting that are in this story, but by God, do do they annoy me. Do you have a favorite one or two we can talk about? Um, Let me, give me your, uh, and let me find one. I mean, for me, I I actually rather liked the writing of the first short story we did. I thought it was pretty successful, even that it had some very weird plot decisions in terms of the story, particularly near the end. I think the mm-hmm. plot of this one is ultimately more effective and the structure of the story is ultimately more effective, but the writing doesn't work as well for me, and we, I never feel as into the mindset of the characters in this story as I did with the first one. I like some aspects of I got into it. I've been pondering some aspects of James's personality, but I felt closer to the main character and more invested in the main character of the last short story than I ever can compare with James here. Now, that may be, to a certain degree, intentional, because James is ultimately intentionally dying an artist in his last performance that is never going to resonate with me. But I think there's aspects of each story that they do well that almost feel like if you talked both writers into writing to com- a combined story together, it might, make, might produce a more successful conclusion. Yeah, and I think like one of the things that happened in the last story that we didn't get here is the coziness. The, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and. Yeah. BJ, you're, you're more of a fine dining focus than I am, at least. Sarah, I won't cast the same aspersions at you as I will cast against myself on that topic, but this seemed to be kind of dialing into a bit of the fine dining experience. Did any of that resonate with you? Uh, sure. I mean, like, and to be fair, like, that's not really where uh, I've gone into my food forays. Um, I mean, a good chunk of that is money, but another chunk of it is uh, diversity. It's just um, not that and, interesting. Yeah, and so like I've had like some of it, and I think the problem that I have with some of this, the quote-unquote fine dining, is that it's good, but it's not always terribly interesting. Mm-hmm. Sure. Whereas, um, and I think I've talked about it before, there's this French restaurant in the middle of nowhere in Maryland that it was a family doing it, and everything was basically made on that farm. And it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think, to me, where the reson like it very much resonates that that's something that I don't have a lot of interest in, and the dishes that were presented and like everything around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she did a good job in something that I don't like. And I gotcha. will I will counter that a little bit because I I was looking for examples of the overwrittenness of this story that drive me mm-hmm. nuts. 
And while there, there are other examples, a lot of them occur around the descriptions of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is once again unclear to me if this was meant to be a parody and didn't quite get there, or yeah. if this is just bad food review writing. I'm not entirely sure. But the prime example for me, which I noticed when I was, I've, I've found it again, and I noticed when I was rereading the story again today, um, is James returned after a few minutes with two plates of perfectly seared duck breast topped mm. with sage-infused blackberry glaze atop whipped potatoes that had been subtly kissed by caramelized onions. And the phrase subtly kissed, just like I, I had to throw my computer away <laughs> and walk away from the situation. Like, that is horrendous writing. What are we doing? Also, the choice to serve smoked oysters <laughs> at the beginning of a... De- anyway. Yes, um, no, that, is, that will kill your taste call, buds. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, sir, I really agree. It's so over the top that, it, again, this is the reason I thought it was parody, because it's, it's something I've never seen outside of just pr- almost purposefully overwrought culinary culinary reviews yeah. that are just yeah. catering to such a small audience they can get away with that shit. And, and like, I think that you did an incredibly good job of putting into words like why I wanted there to be over top descriptions of everything. Yes. Like the two of you, like it just, like it didn't, I wasn't clear on why I wanted it. I just knew that like mundane descriptions were wrong. And I, I could entirely, I could get behind this story that was sort of generally overwrought for me if it felt intentional to be a mimicry of what the, I mean, the ridiculous language that food reviews use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would have been fine, but it just didn't get there for me. And it never felt, it only felt intentional in as such as like the author had these words that she wanted to use. Like that was, that yeah. was what it felt like to me. If it had been done like that, if it had all intentionally been overwrought, I feel like that would almost work better into what the ultimate purpose of the story is yes. in terms of being a last yes. performance. Mm-hmm. If if that had been like the same thing of like, um, and then there were none, where the whole story, spoilers, sorry, spoilers. We are uh, we are going to talk about, and then there were none later in the series. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, BJ, have you read it too? The, the, uh, a the, long time ago. Well, no, no, then I'm okay with spoiling it then to you. So, spoilers, everybody, talk for another like 30 seconds to skip this if you want. We're going to do this story here in a little bit. <laughs> but it, the ultimate framing context of In There Were None is that all of this was, a, was ultimately an account written by the murderer thrown off into the sea, possibly never even being expected to be found. And so it's all in some ways done from that perspective of all those details and everything else. That provides the framing device for the story. In spoiler. If this had been done, if this had been intentionally overwrought in that same kind of way throughout every other kind of detail and ending with that kind of last performance, I could have understood it in the light of where it's a last account or a last video, mm-hmm. preserving that moment of final triumph. And that would have been really unique and an interesting, almost mimicry mocking kind of way of doing it. Actually, um, if this had been like an, an actual from 2019 story, this would have, this person, uh, Simon, would have been. Mm-hmm videoing like recording all of this on his phone live blogging i mean it would have like that would have been and that would have been much more believable in this scenario in a 2019 setting which they have made very clear from the dates with the wine and when they're having this meal and that and that could have so delightfully added to the tension of the moment of where james is revealing the little details about the women but it's on live feed and he can't and simon can't stop it 
and it all mm-hmm. works into the kind of egotistical performance that James is ultimately putting on. God, that's so um, much a better story. I can't even get and, over and it right it now. It then generates the new TikTok t- challenge of the <laughs> uh, fentanyl Lafitte. Oh boy, um, that's not a thing we need in the world. <laughs> uh, I feel like we keep on touching with these stories where there are aspects of these stories that we like that we'd like if the author had gone in that direction more or just even picked the direction to go in. Yes. Because um, mm-hmm. like, like I said, I actually rather like the structure and the plot and the pacing of this story. It rather yep. well works. Mm-hmm. But it just feels so isolated compared to all the other things that would actually build it up to be a successful. It's a mechanic of a story, not necessarily a story unto itself. Yep. So. What are we reading next? Um, we will figure that out. Well, why don't we or just Sarah, choose? Do let's a... go ahead and do, let's do something very different. Let's do Better yep. Days. Better okay. Days. Okay. Well, uh... y'all, we, ha- we have our reading list for the next, for next week when we come back to read another short story. Mm-hmm. But if you, BJ, if people are jonesing for material to listen to, if they're craving more, where can they find it in terms of our stuff? Uh, they can do it on MangumTalks.com. We have all of our content on there, and if you have any questions or comments, you can sub, uh, click Contact Us at the upper right-hand corner. We also have a Facebook page under Mangum Reads, um, as well as uh, some Instagram things, and <laughs> I have a feeling that a TikTok will appear soon. Oh, um, but on our Mangum Talks page, we have... Uh, some other podcasts, uh, one of which, Spencer, I think you're a part of, and uh, it has something to do with old Persian games. Uh, there is a certain debate on that. China claims it like China does everything else. But yes, on Mangum Talks TV, we are currently going through The Queen's Gambit. We've gone through episode two. We'll be coming out with episode three here shortly. It is a bit of a change of pace show for us when we're so otherwise focused on science fiction or fantasy, but we're having a delight with it as at the end of each episode, I go through just a nasty spiral of history, which gives you, I guess, an unnecessary view into how my mind works when I get on Wikipedia binges. But having fun talking about it, glad people are enjoying listening to it, and hopefully we'll tune in for more episodes.